As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Becky, uh, boys and girls can head out to Story Keepers or to Nursery. As the kids are heading out, let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these accounts of Jesus' appearances after his resurrection and for how they provide a word to us in all sorts of our uh, emotional states and the way that we uh, find ourselves all through this life even 2,000 years on. We pray that uh, this word, uh, Jesus spoke to his disciples, would be a word of encouragement to us this morning, that no matter whether we are still in a place of uh, struggling to believe or know what we believe, or those who have walked in faith for many, many years, that you, the great counselor, would uh, speak by your spirit into each of our hearts, encouraging us, directing us, strengthening us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've been here over the last few weeks, you'll know we're going through a series right now looking at the real last words of Jesus, in part to show that when we might refer to the last words of Jesus, referring to his words on the cross, they weren't actually his last words, because having died, he rose again from the dead and spoke to hundreds of people in the time between his resurrection and his ascension. And today we come to Jesus's post-resurrection word for the skeptical. The title of today's sermon had been a word for the doubter. I suspect that most of us, if we have some working knowledge of Jesus's encounters after the resurrection, would have thought to ourselves, ah, well, yes, that will be Jesus's encounter with Thomas, doubting Thomas. But didn't Jeremy just preach on doubting Thomas a few weeks ago? And indeed he did. He pointed out at that point that Thomas probably has had a bit of a bad, unfair rap, having been labeled for now for 2,000 years as doubting Thomas, a, a, an unfair rap because he actually was the very first person post-resurrection to actually proclaim Jesus to be my Lord and my God. However, hearing, having heard today's reading as Becky read it, you'll realize that we're not looking specifically 
at Thomas today, but at the rest of the disciples, whom I would suggest to you were actually all doubting Thomases. It's really quite unfair for Thomas to get all the publicity as for his doubting, when the reality is that every single disciple was a doubting Thomas right down to the last man. And I'd suggest to you, so are we. So I'll mention in a few moments, there are different kinds of doubt, different manifestations of skepticism, but all of us know what it is to deal with doubt. Jesus addresses doubt, addresses specifically the doubt of the disciples in this incident recorded by Luke. And what we're going to hopefully see from this passage is this, that the risen Jesus deals with our doubts about the past and our doubts about the future, all of which changes how we live in the present. Risen Jesus deals with our doubts about the past, our doubts about the present, all of which changes the way we live in the present. So let's think first of all about Jesus, how he deals with our doubts about the past. As I just mentioned, doubts come in many shapes and sizes. Don Carson in his 2010 book, Scandalous, The Cross and the Resurrection of Jesus, mentions a, different, a number of different kinds of doubts. For example, some doubts are simply grounded in some sort of ignorance. People simply have no notion of what Christianity is all about. Other doubts are rooted in a conscious moral choice. I remember a friend I had in Dublin who was living an immoral lifestyle and refused to seriously consider Christianity because he knew that it would significantly challenge how he was living, and he didn't want to be challenged in that area. Other doubt is, in a sense, a rite of passage or a function of maturity, of maturing. For those of us who grew up in a Christian home, perhaps sheltered from other worldviews, we found ourselves somewhat at sea post-high school. As suddenly what we had been taught through our childhood was challenged left, right, and center in college or in the workplace. And sometimes doubt is generated not by a deliberate big moral choice, but by thousands of small individual choices that take us in the wrong direction such that one day we wake up and we decide we just don't believe the Bible anymore. And then there are those doubts that are generated by a crisis in our lives, the loss of a loved one, the memory of childhood abuse or some other experience of suffering. For, those, for some, those doubts have led to now what is being referred to as Christian deconstruction, a complete rejection of a Christian faith that someone has been raised in or has lived for many years or at least a rejection of aspects of that faith. So if we were to try to categorize the doubt that Jesus deals with here in Luke 24, it seems that it's, it's that last category of doubt or skepticism generated by a crisis. That here we have a, a group of people who at this point were hiding out behind locked doors who had just gone through uh, unexpected and overwhelming religious disappointment. Because a week prior, they had watched their leader, Jesus, ride into Jerusalem on a donkey as the self-proclaimed Messiah, God's anointed king. For the disciples, this was what they had been waiting for, that their king would come and assert his authority and defeat the pagan army that was occupying their land. And then less than a week later, all those hopes are dashed, their worldview in absolute tatters, 
Their leader was, was dead, crucified by the authorities as a criminal. And with the dismantling of their worldview came the onslaught of this doubt and skepticism. They obviously had been wrong. He couldn't have been the Messiah after all, given what had just happened. But then on the Sunday after his death, as we've been seeing over the last few weeks, reports start coming in that the tomb is, is empty. His grave clothes were there, but the, the body was gone. Not, however, because the body had been stolen, but because, so the reports were coming in, he had actually risen from the dead. So there was the report of Mary Magdalene, the report of the other women, the report of these two travelers uh, earlier in the same chapter, Luke 24, the travelers who had left Jerusalem to return home to Emmaus. And it's while the disciples, locked in this room back in Jerusalem, were discussing the report of these two Emmaus travelers that Luke tells us what happens next. So we pick up the story in verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said, said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it at before them. Now, reading an account like this, we, we see yet again how for the disciples, Jesus' resurrection was completely outside the realm of what they thought was possible. They'd heard the eyewitness accounts. They're talking right at this point about the latest report of the risen Jesus. And in the middle of this conversation, Jesus appears in the room. And you think, well, it would be understandable at this stage for them to say, oh, there you are. We, we just were talking about you. We wonder when you might actually finally show up. But that's not their reaction at all, is it? It's all doubt and skepticism. In fact, it's worse than that. Luke tells us that they're absolutely terrified and shocked. They think it's a ghost. And Jesus asked them, why are you troubled? Why are there doubts in your heart? Now, as we see over and over in these post gospel post-resurrection accounts, so we see here again that the disciples... They just did not have a category for what they were seeing, for what they were hearing, for what they were experiencing. Even now, with Jesus standing right in front of them, they're skeptical. All of which makes the accusations of some over the last 2,000 years rather ridiculous that the story of the resurrection was fabricated by the disciples to try to get their movement back on its feet again. Because that just doesn't fit the evidence. There were actually lots of messianic movements in the Jewish world, roughly contemporary with Jesus. There were many situations in which a messianic leader died a violent death at the hand of the authorities. And yet in not one single case do we have the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their leader was not in fact dead but had been raised from the dead. They simply knew better than to try that one. Because in the Jewish world, an individual could not be raised in the middle of history, and history just continue on as if nothing had ever happened, which explains why these disciples, even with Jesus standing right in front of them, 
were to a person doubting Thomas's. So what does Jesus do? He tells them to consider the evidence. He tells them to look at his hands and his feet, look at the nail marks in his hands. Luke doesn't include it, but John in his gospel tells us that Jesus also invited them to look at his side. Practice of the Roman soldiers in crucifixions, if they needed to finish off their victims more quickly than the usual death by suffocation, the way they did that was to smash the shin bones of the victim. That way the, the victim could no longer push up with their legs to enable them to breathe and, and the victim would die more quickly. Well, John tells us in his account of the crucifixion that when the Roman soldiers came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. So that instead of breaking his legs, one of the soldiers shoves his short spear under Jesus's ribcage, piercing the pericardium, causing blood and water to flow out of his side. All of which is to say that Jesus had quite unique wounds, and these wounds were proof to his disciples that it was him. That's what he says here. I am he. It's me. It really is me. I flesh and bones. I, I can't be a ghost. So that Jesus deals with the disciples' doubts by presenting to them the first-hand evidence that is his body. And still they're not completely convinced, are they? Luke vividly portrays their state of mind at this point when in verse 41 he literally writes that in their joy they were disbelieving. It might not have been that dissimilar to the reaction we saw last week in Matthew 28 of the women who reacted to the news of Jesus' resurrection with fear and great joy. For Luke to say that in their joy they were disbelieving sounds like a strange way of putting things, but we could perhaps paraphrase it to say they thought this was all too good to be true. The evidence was all pointing in one direction, but could it really be true? Jesus keeps adding to the evidence for his resurrection as he then asks them if they have something he could eat. Well, they'd had fish for dinner that night, so, you know, the likely first celebratory meal for the resurrected King Jesus, who has just gone and defeated sin and death, is the disciples' leftovers. Isn't that just priceless? And then in a similar manner to what Jesus did with the two travelers on the road to Emmaus, Jesus opens up the scriptures, and he opens up their minds to remove the doubts. Resolution actually only comes for the disciples when the scriptural illumination is added to the physical material data. Now here's a possible thought going through some of your heads. You might be thinking to yourself, well, that's all very well for the disciples and their doubts, but how does that really help me? I mean, I, I struggle to believe at times that Jesus really rose from the dead. How could God deal with my doubts when I don't get to see the risen Jesus like the disciples did? Let me take you back to Jesus' conversation with Thomas, a conversation that took place a week later than this one, but in the very same room. And after Jesus appears before Thomas, Thomas exclaims in confession to Jesus, my Lord and my God, here's what Jesus uh, re responds with to Thomas, John 20, 29. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then John writes this, John 20, 30 to 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. 
But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus and then John are telling us here that God has provided ample evidence for our doubts, just as he provided evidence for the doubts of the disciples. It's just we've received a different kind of evidence. Instead of the physical Jesus standing in front of us, we've been given eyewitness accounts, eyewitness testimonies, testimonies that bear each other out. And Jesus says, that's all the evidence you need. Actually, in Luke 16, Jesus says that if you won't believe what is written in the scriptures, then you're not even going to believe if someone were to rise from the dead and appear in front of you. That if you're skeptical about what Jesus did in the past, God has graciously given you all that you need right here in the Bible to doubt your doubts and to be skeptical of your skepticism. That Jesus deals with our doubts about what has happened in the past. But secondly, Jesus also deals with our doubts about what will happen in the future. Jesus here really appears as the first fruits of of the new creation, the first fruits of what God has in store for all his people in the new heaven and the new earth. And it's shockingly physical and robust. He's not a ghost. He has flesh and bones and he eats fish. And so, and in so doing, he actually smashes so many of our misconceptions about what lies beyond the grave. Jesus deals with our doubts here by showing us that there's not just life after death, there's life after life after death. That is that while when we die, our souls go to be with God in heaven, that's not the final chapter. That when Jesus returns, our souls are going to be reunited with with our perfected spiritual bodies, as Paul refers to them in 1 Corinthians 15, reunited for eternity. Life after life after death. And I'd suggest to you that we really need as Christians to recover a more robust understanding of what God has promised to us as a consequence of the physical resurrection of Jesus. I want to tread carefully here. I certainly don't intend to offend anyone. But I think we we downplay the reality of death and the promise of physical resurrection when at funerals we might request words such as those by Uh, Canon Henry Scott Holland from St. Paul's Cathedral. Familiar words that you may have heard begin like this. Death is nothing at all. It does not count. I have only slipped away into the next room. Nothing has happened. Everything remains exactly as it was, end quote. Now, the irony is that Scott Holland used those words in a sermon to point to a perspective he himself fundamentally disagreed with, but he keeps getting ascribed to these words. Because as a Christian minister, he knew very well that death is not nothing at all. Death is the last great enemy. Death separates loved ones. Death is emotionally wrenching. And if death is nothing at all, then what does that say about the resurrection? Take it or leave it, you know? Another poem sometimes read at funerals, which I'm sure some of you have heard, goes like this. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the sunlight on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I did not die. And somehow many Christians have been persuaded that this 
kind of ongoing life is what we mean by the traditional teaching of the immortality of the soul or the resurrection of the dead. Whereas what I just read has more to do with a low grace, popular nature religion with some elements of Buddhism thrown in. But the Bible teaches that unless Jesus returns first, we do indeed die. Every one of us. The statistics, unless you have seen something different, is that one out of every one will die. We go to the grave. But the promise through Jesus is that one day our bodies will be raised, transformed for eternity. Physical, bone and flesh, fish eating, steak eating, vegetable eating, wine drinking, dessert eating bodies. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. (laughs) Jesus' resurrection appearance, therefore, to the disciples manifests this perspective that gloriously overcomes the doubts that we might have about the future. Many of you I know have heard of Joni Erickson Tata. She's 72 years old now, but a diving accident back in 1967 left her paralyzed from the neck down. Since then, she's just been a tremendous witness to God's grace in her life, and in particular to the great hope of the resurrection, to life after life after death. And in her book on heaven, she describes how on one occasion she attended a convention And at the end of one of the sessions, the speaker invited the 500 people there, if they were able, to kneel in front of their seats as they closed the session in prayer. Joni Erickson Tata watched from her wheelchair as everyone around her did so, and as she watched, she couldn't stop her tears. But her crying, however, was not out of self-pity. Here's what she wrote. She said, sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven I will be free to jump up dance, kick, and do aerobics. And although I'm sure Jesus will be delighted to watch me rise on tiptoe, there's something I plan to do that may please him more. If possible, somewhere, sometime before the party gets going, sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus, The day is drawing near when I'll be able to kneel again. I know it. Heaven is just around the corner. Jesus with his resurrected body, flesh and bones body, fish-eating body, deals with our doubts about what will happen in the future. So Jesus deals here with our doubts about what has happened in the past. He deals with our doubts about what will happen in the future, which brings us then to our third point, that all of this should change how we live in the present. So as we close, let me give you four uh, quick ways we are changed in the present as our doubts about the past and the future are dealt with. And the first is this, that we get a, we get a brand new perspective on suffering. It is a massive, massive thing for us to ponder that the resurrected Jesus still bears the wounds from the nails in his hands and his feet and the spear in his side. There are a number of levels at which we could consider this, but here's just one. That Jesus' post-resurrection wounds teach us that our sufferings are not forgotten in the new heaven and the new earth, but that somehow they will sweeten our experience of God there. So to take Joni Erickson Tata as an example, there will be a sweetness for her kneeling before Jesus 
that I suspect will go beyond the experience any of us will have doing the same thing. The Bible promises that through the resurrection, we enter into the life we always wanted, the family, the body, the love that we always yearned for. Things that some of us might say we never had or that we lost here in this life. So that in some way, our, our present suffering will only make our joy greater. Even the worst things that you've experienced in your life will only make the joy greater. And as you take that in, the bitterness that so many of us can feel at our present suffering starts to dissipate, starts to subside. We gain a new perspective on suffering. Secondly, we are changed in the present as our hearts are continually being transformed by the gospel. Back in verse 38, Jesus asked the disciples, why do doubts rise in your hearts? Because you see, our struggles and our doubts are primarily matters of the heart. They're issues of trust that penetrate deep within us. And the way that our hearts are healed from these doubts and continually transformed is, hopefully I don't have to tell you, it's through the gospel. The result of which is articulated by Jesus here in verse 47 as it results in repentance and the forgiveness of our sins. So that we need to be continually pressing upon our hearts this picture of a savior with holes in his hands and his feet because he was crucified in our place dying to pay for our sin, our rebellion. Holes that are there because of me and because of you. But a risen Savior with holes because he has fully paid for that sin. Which means that you and I can know that God is, right now is not against us in any shape or form. He is for us. He loves us. And as a result, we have no reason whatsoever not to trust him with every single aspect of our lives. We're continually being transformed in the present through the gospel. Thirdly, we're changed in the present as we become proclaimers to others of this new reality. Look at verses 46 to 47. He said to him, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem, from Jerusalem. So Jesus structures his words here in such a way as to say that three things will happen. First, Christ will suffer. Second, Christ will die. And then third, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached. And Jesus took care of those first two on his own EO. He did it all himself. He suffered and died and then rose again. But you see, you and I have a mandate now to join in with what Jesus started and participate in the third and what an incredible news it is that we get to proclaim, that there is now a new reality. Now a new reality, as we sang a couple of weeks ago. Now death is dead, and love has won, and Christ has conquered. Death has been defeated. So that now the guaranteed promise of, of, is there of new bodies, and no sickness, and no disease, and no tears, and no pain, and no grief, all because of the resurrected Jesus. We become proclaimers to others of this new reality. And then fourthly and lastly, we're changed in the present 
through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Look at verse 49. Behold, Jesus says, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus here is making reference to the sending of the Holy Spirit that will come, will be sent on the day of Pentecost. And in that context, we learn here that we are changed because of True, true, two truths that we're told about here about the Holy Spirit. First of all, since Jesus has just mentioned about proclaiming the news of a risen Christ and the good news of this new reality, we realize it's the, it's the Spirit who empowers us to do that. He empowers us to do the work of proclaiming the news of a risen Christ. You and I can easily cower away from talking about Jesus out of some kind of fear, fears, the sort of fears that we were addressing last week a fear of rejection, a, a fear of a question we might not know the answer to, a, a fear of ridicule. But that fear often originates from our forgetting that Jesus has sent his spirit, promised by the Father, not just to the original disciples, but to us. And the spirit is a spirit not of fear, but of boldness, empowering us to proclaim the good news of a risen Savior. But secondly, we're changed in the present because the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. Jesus said, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. That just as Jesus ate the fish in the very presence of the disciples, he's in our presence right now. Not physically, but spiritually but no less real a presence. And as he dwells within us, he continues to deal with our doubts. He continues to point us to the scriptures. He continues to give us more and more and more of himself through his spirit. And that is such a big deal and a massive blessing for every single follower of Jesus. No one is excluded on this. Last month, an Italian scientist and his team published the results of their recent research into the Shroud of Turin, a fabric purported by some to have been Jesus' burial garment, but which others believe to be a fake, but using a, a new x-ray technique called wide-angle x-ray scattering to examine a sample of the linen, the research team determined that the shroud could actually be around 2,000 years old and not just 700 years old as previously suggested. While that recent development may be of some passing archaeological or historical interest to some, in truth, it's not really that big deal for a Christian. If you think about how when a loved one dies, suddenly his or her clothes, their belongings, it almost takes on a, a sacred significance, doesn't it? You hold the clothes, you smell the clothes, but you never did that when the person was alive. And the reason you never did it when the person was living was because you had the person. They were right there with you. They were present with you. So it is that we have no record of the disciples collecting the burial clothes from the tomb. Why? It's simple, because they had the person now. They had Jesus. And we do too. We do too, that through the indwelling spirit, we have Jesus, the risen Jesus, present with us, present with you, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that has to change everything. 
Risen Jesus deals with our doubts about the past, deals with our doubts about the future, and all of that changes how we live in the present. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how good you are, how kind, how you are, as Isaiah prophesied, the wonder counselor who knows exactly the words to speak in each situation as you've demonstrated yet again here in this account with your own disciples. And yet we thank you that you minister to us exactly in the same way, exactly with the same perfect timing. Minister to us not in, by being here such that we can see you physically, but present by your spirit and therefore just, just as present. And Lord, we pray that that would really be a, an encouragement to us this week, that at no point would we feel like we are orphans, but we would know that we, having been adopted by God, our Heavenly Father, and having you, Jesus, as our elder brother, and your spirit living within us, that we indeed would live boldly this week, that we would have a new perspective on the hard things in our life, and that we would glorify you in all that we do, for we pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.